Hello, it's a pleasure to be with you here on Classical Crossroads. And our guest today is Diana Batarsi, who is head of school for King's Academy, Nashville. So Diana is founding head of school at King's Academy, Nashville. She is an educator, trainer, and presenter, having worked with students pre-K through high school. She has a life filled with ministry leadership and kingdom work aligned with the mission and values of King's Academy. Diana has mentored and counseled teachers, parents, and church volunteers. She was the founding director of Mustard Seed Preschool, a classical preschool, which is a ministry of Christ's community in Franklin, Tennessee. Her classroom experience includes teaching at Franklin Classical School, West Harpeth Christian Tutorial, and being a leading volunteer at New Hope Academy. As the developer of Ask Me Who, the children's first catechism set to music, she uses her musical gifting to teach children about the beauty of God's truth and creation. Her most recent position before becoming head of school at King's Academy Nashville was as director of discipleship and equipping at Christ Community Church. Welcome, Diana. Thank you so much, Angel. I'm so happy to be with you today. We are so grateful that you are with us. So we like to get to know our guests, um, since this is classical education and podcast, by learning more about your educational background. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about your own educational journey, um, K-12 and in college, um, and also curious if you had any opportunity during that time to get a classical education? Great question. And the quick answer is no to your second question. I didn't get formally trained in classical education. So I am the daughter of two immigrants from Columbia, South America. Both my parents came to Chicago. They had graduated medical school. And that was a huge feat. My mom and dad were first and second in their medical school class. They toggled back and forth. And my mom has bragging rights because at the end of the 50s, that was, and in South America, that was a big deal. So they came to Chicago and I learned to speak Spanish first and then English. So I was educated um, in private schools in Chicago. And, uh, and then we moved to the suburbs went through public education. I went to Northwestern University thinking that I was gonna pursue medicine. So I was on and off pre-med in my time there, but I had such a fashion fascination with my newfound faith. Um, I became a Christian in college. And so my degree was history and literature of religions. So it was basically a comparative religion degree and comparing Christianity to the other major religions of the world. And I graduated, um, you know, not necessarily, which is common to very many young um, 22 year old graduates uh, trying to figure it out, but that is my background. And I happily stumbled onto classical education a little bit later on in life um, when on the occasion of, um, after being married, my, our daughter was a year and a half, and my then late husband had accepted a position at Franklin Classical School. The humorous thing is that uh, Jonathan told the school that he could teach Spanish, and I thought that was very bodacious of him because I knew his Spanish abilities. <laughs> and so I said, let me co-teach this for you, <laughs> with you, so that we can get your lesson plans up in the first year, and then you can go on from there. And I took on the, the kids to Spanish two and forward. So that's how I stumbled onto teaching. And my first experience teaching was in a classical school under the wonderful George, Dr. George Grant, who um, I learned very much from. Okay, okay, wonderful. And so how long ago was that, that you were teaching at this classical school? 
25 years ago. Wow. Yes. So that baby is now 26 and she actually um, is uh, completing medical school. So it skipped a generation. Okay. (laughs) Very, very nice. Well, before we go on, um, we've been talking about classical education, but how would you define classical education, especially if you're talking to a parent who maybe is considering sending them to the school, how would you describe classical education? So that's a great question because I have sort of a longer explanation for parents who have little to no um, experience with classical ed. And then I have sort of a a more global view and I'll, I'll actually share a little bit of both. Sure. Basically, I believe that the aim of classical education is to shape the affections of the students towards those things which are good, true, and beautiful. And that is very broad. It doesn't speak to the pedagogy. And so that is where we look at the origins of classical education as being based in Greco-Roman history. And it was St. Augustine who looked at this model and ran it through the grid of scripture. So I explained to parents that St. Augustine took the passage in Proverbs that says, by knowledge, understanding, and wisdom, a house is built. And he corresponded the three uh, well, what we're now calling sort of the phases of classical education in its iteration that we commonly see today of grammar, logic, and rhetoric. So the grammar stage of learning is youngest age, typically through fourth grade. um, And it corresponds to the uh, knowledge phase or knowledge of that passage. So you're looking at the data of the disciplines, the vocabulary of every discipline. Um, And then a student goes through... um, the logic stage of learning in fifth through eighth grade typically, and that corresponds to the understanding um, by knowledge, understanding and wisdom a house is built. So that is where the students are now engaging with material and going deeper, asking questions that um, are more about the why, where the grammar stage is the what of every discipline, the logic stage would be more about the why. What is it that tell what is the conflict of the war of 1812 tell us more not just dates and places but now who were the major right um why were those characters in this theater of war um, in this conflict and then lastly um the rhetoric stage which is the high school years 9 through 12 so all of history is again repeated um and this time studied with that view toward wisdom And the Hebrew word for wisdom literally means skillful fingers. And so you're making use of that knowledge um, that you've acquired, that you've now understood and hopefully now can apply toward use. And these, this, all of this is with the aim of building the virtues in our students and um, wanting them to love what is true, good and beautiful. And these are things that find their, their source in Christ in our triune God. Oh, I, I love that, um, that kind of etymology, you know, with the idea of skillful fingers. And I, I don't know what the initial um, reference was to, but what immediately came to mind for me was the idea of weaving and kind of weaving together everything that you get and the grammar and logic stages together to produce something beautiful and complex and well put together at that rhetoric stage. Um, it's a really beautiful idea. I love yeah. that weaving. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I also noted with some interest that you have a musical background, and 
this is um, something that I love because music is very close to my heart. And so I just wanted, if, if you could share with us, um, what is your thinking about how music is part of a classical education, either listening to it, playing it, you know, however you might think. That is wonderful. Well, at King's Academy, um, our day is structured to where we do our, we have a morning chapel. We do our academics in the morning. And in that time, kids have recess and then they come and have lunch. And then in the afternoon, we have a program called the Paideo program, which is a Greek term that means education. And in the New Testament was used in a sense of education toward a culture of the church. But in our case, it's really towards a culture of discovery. And this speaks to our particular philosophy of education, which takes into account the two factors at play in any child's education, the personhood of the child and the community of the child. And I could go on, actually, I love talking about the philosophy of education. We say that it's bridged by this culture of discovery, which is characterized by imagination, wonder, and joy. Imagination as a precursor to faith, wonder as a precursor to wisdom, and joy as both our journey as the chief end of every human being is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And it is our destination. So music is one of those beautiful disciplines where we get to understand how God has taken um, chaos and brought it to order, how you can have a set of notes that mean nothing. And many people have that guitar in their closet or the piano in the living room and there it is but it's not producing sound it's not um it is not speaking to the soul mm -hmm. until you have that relationship to the instrument and you can say like god who um that we know in genesis chapter one he hovered over the surface of the deep mm -hmm. and it was formless and void and in a sense you have any instrument. And at the beginning of the journey, you begin to participate just like God who logos with the word spoke the world into being. And as a musician or as anyone approaching music, we come and we engage in the same process of taking something formless and bringing something beautiful out of it, out of, you know, seven different notes. And of course the half steps that repeat over and over. And then you take into it the variety of rhythm and um, time signatures, and it's an infinite possibility of exploration. So we know that music is a gift. We know that Christ himself led his disciples in singing a song after he um, led them in the feast. Mm -hmm. And he led them in a song to God who does not change and who loves us and who does not betray us. And so we have precedent of um, this beauty, this um, invitation from God to participate in everything that he has made. And of course, we know we are made in his image. And so we are to be those who play the instruments. We are to be those who sing the songs, to write the songs, to appreciate them and to engage ourselves in it. And from a classical perspective, it, it looks a lot more like, for example, in chapel, we sing. We sing the songs that I wrote um, uh, on the children's catechism. And yet that's not our music time. 
That is our devotion time. In our music time, we're looking at the elements of music to get a deeper understanding. So it's not just producing music, but it's understanding vibration, pitch, and meter, and duration, and rest. And there's so much um, as the children grow and learn that they will uncover and discover about God's revelation of himself through the things that he has made. And he has certainly made music. And so that may be a circuitous way of answering the question, how is music, um, how does it relate in classical education? How can you approach it classically? And um, if I, if you have clarifying questions, I'm glad to answer. That's yeah. Helpful. Um, very helpful. And so I'm wondering, um, for you, is voice the main instrument um, or are there other instruments that you also explore? Yes. Well, I, um, I would say that I'm a musician and that God gave me that gift, which I'm so grateful for. And I attempt and try to honor him by sharing it in his kingdom. And um, I first learned to play the piano starting at age seven. Mm -hmm. And I taught myself to play the guitar at age 11. And somewhere at the beginning of high school, I discovered that I could sing. And so I also started composing uh, my first song actually was prior to, to that, but I don't know that I count, counted myself a singer quite yet, but mm-hmm. um, so those are my main instruments are vocal guitar and piano, but I have, I can dabble in the banjo and the ukulele and the mandolin. And um, at our house, it's pretty funny. We have, I have a daughter who plays everything I've mentioned and more with the bass and um, a resonator and violin and you name it. It's pretty fun. It's, it's beautiful. Um, I grew up playing the cello and that has just been so important to my life. I started when I was 11. Um, so it's been several decades, which is all, (laughs) Um, you know, but it's just been such a blessing over the years to be able to play it. And the funny story is, um, so I was, in this music program, we had to choose um, what string instrument. And I remember watching this TV show called Fame, um, really old uh, show with the School of the Art <laughs> in New York City. And there was this woman, I think her name was Lori, and she played the cello and she had this long flowing hair and she would just rock back and forth <laughs> she was just in love with this cello. I said, whatever she is doing, that's what I want to do. So that is the reason I chose the cello. Like she just, I love so it. Beautiful and romantic and just lost in this beauty. Um, and it's just been an absolute pleasure to play. And as I can imagine, um, you've found uh, over the years with maybe different people or students that, you know, it can be hard to keep the music going. Like you made reference to instruments and closets. Um, and <laughs> happily I've been able to keep playing. Um, and I'm just very, very grateful for that. Um, and I love your insights about, you know, kind of having access in some ways to the, the kind of creative work to enter into some communion with God. You know, I definitely feel that when I'm playing and will often begin with a prayer, just asking God to help me to enter into this space with him and that music as an offering. You know, I'm just sitting sitting in my room playing, but to me, it's still a musical offering. Um, and so I really appreciate uh, everything you're saying about music and classical education. Well, I love that. And um, I had a new thought I had never considered. I 
was reading a book on truth, goodness, and beauty. And in it, the author described music as being vehicle of unity in a community, because in the act of performing music together or singing a song, it can be as simple as singing a song, you are all having to observe the same rhythm, the same pitch, the same lyric. And so it is in and of itself a vehicle of unity, which is one of our core values, right. diversity, humility, and unity. And so I thought how beautiful, and that would describe what you see at King's Academy in the mornings when we're all on the same page, we're not only singing the songs, but we're also, also using sign language um, mm -hmm. as we are learning these songs. So it's very kinesthetic. There's a lot of body movement. It's body, mind, and spirit. Anyway, so I love that depiction of, of music as a unifier. Yeah. And um, if we're all singing different songs at the same time, what is that? But cacophony and, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I think it, it it brings students really literally to the same place. So a couple of examples of that. Um, so I used to homeschool my daughters until last fall, and they're now at Regents, which is a wonderful um, classical Christian school. But I have still kept to myself some morning time before they go to school, where we'll open in prayer and read together. Um, and I try, I don't always get time, but I try when I can to squeeze in a hymn um, before that. And one of the things I found is that even when sometimes, you know, one of my daughters seems to have gotten up on the wrong side of the bed, or there's, you know, some kind of issue, issue or someone's grouchy, when we start the singing, mm. that just is a reset, a reset in a really beautiful way. And I've, I've found that it, it really doesn't ever fail, um, that even if things have, have gotten off to a rocky start for whatever reason, singing together is just helpful for bringing a sense of calm. Um, and like you said, bringing a sense of unity. So I, I do, I really resonate with what you're saying there. I think it's very important. That's that's beautiful. And that's a testimony that I can assent and, and relate to. And I think the other aspect too, depending on what you're singing, you mentioned hymns. If you're singing the songs of um, a hymn writer, the lyric of hymn writer, or the composer of the actual music, if they're deceased, if they, they are the cloud of witnesses, we are now joining also in the song of the church universal, which mm -hmm. is powerful. And I think these, of course, when you think about that ultimate goal of shaping the affections yes. towards that, which is true, good and beautiful, something as simple as singing. I think sometimes people feel that classical education is inaccessible and perhaps out of reach, but even the simple discussion about the act of singing, but framing it and understanding that in classical education, each discipline that we approach is actually a portal and an opportunity to understand the God that we serve, to understand the God who is the God of all of history. The one, if you are a Christian classical educator, then that is of highest interest to you to invite students into that meta narrative. And you're in, you're not more limited in science time than art or a game of chess or whatever it may be. Um, that mm -hmm. to me is an exciting way of approaching education. And of course, you know, we've been sp speaking specifically about music, but I think that principle holds. It does, does. So I wanna shift gears a little bit and ask you to tell us how you came to be the founding head 
of King's Academy. I can imagine it's quite a story. (laughs) I may be the one most surprised than anyone. I'll start by saying that I left a position at a church that is beloved, uh, Christ Community Church. I owe so much of my own spiritual formation, um, my own emotional healing in the tragedy when I lost my husband. Um, I learned to become a leader. I had certainly never started a school before, and I was invited by Christ Community through the planning team of Mustard Seed Preschool to be the founding director of that school. So at its height, there were 195 students, I had 35 staff people. And I truly, I had some classical educators in our community that I have a great deal of respect for. And they basically asked me, Diana, is this truly gonna be a classical preschool? And I sat up straight and took a deep breath and I said, by gum, yes it is. And so <laughs> I, um, I loved the challenge of being able to say that we were approaching every discipline with the sensibilities that I've, I've mentioned about shaping the affections of our children to that which is true, good, and beautiful, about approaching everything from the grammar stage of learning, especially for the very youngest ones. And so that experience just deepened my understanding, um, really helped me learn and grow in ways that I don't think I can quantify And it was in those years, I did it for five years that I lost my husband. And in some respects, I could have stayed at Mustard Seed forever. I loved it. But I was in a new reality. And I had my two littles. And it was hard to be a single mom and have such a relationally demanding position Mm -hmm. with a large student body. And so I made a shift, but I knew that I would then develop my catechism project, I found that I kind of had stumbled onto something pretty important. Um, Folks were so moved by what the students were learning. And also they were um, really, um, it was elevating family conversations because now students were interacting with huge concepts. I remember Mm -hmm. one family saying, we talked about federal headship at the table at dinner last night. Wow. They're four-year-old. And of course, not to be, not to sound heady or impressive, but you know, as Spurgeon says, if the gospel is at work, if the spirit is at work in a child's life, then it's up to the adult to make things plain. There's not a gospel for children and a gospel for adults. There's only one gospel. So I took on those subjects and tried to explain the best I can. And it just would amaze you. So this is a long answer to your question. How did I become the head? of of, um, King's Academy. So I had this rich and beautiful experience. I did pivot. Little did I know that the Lord was going to help me establish his catechism project through song called Ask Me Who, but then he also threw in a prince and I remarried and Peter and I blended our families. And soon after this brief season of sort of focusing on blending our families, I rejoined the staff at Christ Community. When COVID hit, in 2020, I kind of lifted my eyes from the horizon and thought, my goodness, all of my work responsibilities have come to an absolute halt. I am no longer, you know, planning Sunday school or Bible studies or retreats or church-wide dinners or all the very many things I did. Um, We used to have forums on topics of the day, cultural topics of racism and um, just beautiful work. And I loved it. But here we are. So it was the COVID weirdness at church. And I thought, and we had declining membership at the time, or at at least attendance. And so then I, I really believe that the Lord was sort of kind of 
moving me out of a place that had been a comfort zone for me. It was my crucible and I felt like I had hit my stride and I had learned a lot of leadership chops in those years. And so a friend of mine sent me a text that King's Academy was looking for their next head of school. And my first reaction was no. At first I thought I didn't know that I, um, that that was the right move given what was happening in my church's life, but I just, it just kept thinking about it. And so I made the call and I made myself very uh, vulnerable to our founder. And I said, Palmer, um, before I even apply, I want to tell you, I want to lead with my weaknesses. Here are the things I don't have. In, a, in other words, you wouldn't want me, would you? <laughs> <laughs> so here I am. And I've had the time of my life. It's been amazing. I honestly um, felt that I was being faithful to ask the kingdom question, is this where you want me to serve next? Given the fact that my role had come to such a halt um, hmm. through the whole COVID situation. And so I um, I'm amazed to say that the confirmation of my decision came even in that next week after I'd said yes through tears and prayers and counsel and came to church with this light heart of freedom. Like I, I'm going to do this new thing and I've worked harder than I ever have in my life, but I am um, so pleased to see that the Lord would have this chapter in my life. I really kind of thought I might've been in my last rodeo. I'm not a spring chicken. Mm -hmm. And yet I'm doing this um, incredible work with an amazing team and I've loved it. Excellent, excellent. So your school is notable for its diverse student population. And I'm wondering um, how, how you and the founders decided on that model for King's Academy. Well, I will say to you that at the juncture that I joined the King's Story, the plan, the board and the planning teams, team and the founder had done such a beautiful job of spelling out the mission and vision. And so what I will say is that I was very familiar with this mission and vision because the DNA of King's Academy is one that I recognize. It's something that we see at, well, at New Hope Academy, I don't know if you're familiar with New Hope Academy in Franklin, Tennessee, but it's in its 25th year and it's a remarkable school. It's where my own children went to school. And I owe so much of their own educational and spiritual formation to, to New Hope Academy. And Mustard Seed Preschool was patterned after New Hope. So when I engaged in the story of Kings, I recognized that. So it was, it, the distinctness of the school is that it was Christ-centered of all these schools, Kings, Mustard Seed, New Hope. And um, there are other schools in this country with the same DNA that you'd be familiar with, like Oaks Academy and Hope Academy and mm -hmm. the Ecclesial Schools in um, Florida. Um, Christ-centered, culturally diverse, and classical in its methodology. That value of diversity is one that we believe resonates with Christ's desire for his people to be one. And we know that he didn't save just Israel. He saved people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And so when we get to heaven, um, we're going to be surrounded by a beautiful array of languages and people. And um, the last time I counted, there were, or were researched, there were 192 nations and 6,280 languages, something like that in the world. Mm -hmm. And so 
that's a lot of nations and a lot of languages that will be part of our reality in eternity. Right. And so why do we not see that microcosm here? We know that Christ himself is the embodiment of heaven and earth meeting. He is both the son of God and the son of man. And so that his desire is for us to be unified um, is, is just remarkable and beautiful. And since it is his will, when we pray according to his will, we know he will grant that. I have a discussion with every single family that um, comes to Kings. And I say, this is my one ask of you. You know that our core values are diversity, humility, and unity. Mm -hmm. And I say to them that just because you have a group of diverse people in a room doesn't necessarily make you united. And Kings is asserting that humility is that pathway, Mm -hmm. humility towards God, understanding that we need him, that we need the work of the spirit in our lives and in our heart and humility towards others that's characterized by curiosity that is willing to go into that place of even discomfort in times if you feel awkward or you're not sure we have a good number of Burmese refugees in our school and their name convention is still one that I thought I had figured out and mastered, but I haven't. Every time I think I understand it, I haven't gotten it, but I'll ask. And I think just showing that I have an interest that I'm trying and it's beautiful. And so I do invite the families to you know, meet someone that's different from you and get to know the, the family. So Again, in, as you're probably seeing my pattern of over-answering your questions, um, <laughs> I'll say that we have this desire for diversity because we believe that it is God's desire himself to see his kingdom reflected on earth. And I am here to say that it's happening at Kings in the most extraordinary ways. It's absolutely beautiful. Hmm. And we see diversity, not just racial and cultural diversity, but socioeconomic diversity as well. And um, it is a marvel to me. So I'm sure you're also aware that there have been many criticisms of classical education and, you know, kind of the idea being, um, at least among some critics, that it's not particularly relevant to students of color or that it is, you know, generally geared toward the elite and, and, and really doesn't speak to the situation of young people coming from socioeconomically disadvantaged backgrounds. Um, how would you respond to some of those criticisms? Well, you know, I I have not had that question lodged so much in that way. Sometimes I head that off at the pass and say, now, if you Googled classical ed, which many parents do, so you're going to probably find a lot of bow ties. And so I love bow ties. They're wonderful, but they're not the whole story. And so I think like anything else, Angel, like even Googling Christianity, I mean, what is it that you're going to get? It just depends on how you shape your question, what the search engine optimization will bring to you. There is so much diversity in our Christian faith, and there's so much diversity in the way classical education is is implemented. So I will say to you that I have this interesting niche in that I've been in this community where, frankly, the um, curation of curriculum materials has been really representative of cultures beyond Western European. It doesn't exclude it, but it also is broader. And that's one thing I really appreciate about you. I remember last year you telling me that you assigned your students um, in one of your classes 
of the task of researching children's literature from across all seven continents. And I still would love that list if you have what they came up with, because how brilliant it is there. It's just a matter of what lenses you choose to, um, to apply. So I guess what I'll say is, you know, obviously I, at Kings, we're offering diversity curricularly as well as in, you know, our faculty and our student body and families. And um, it's something that I believe has to be done by intention. And I have seen that model now at several schools. So it's really about looking for the kind of school that, that makes that intentional effort, because I do believe that um, classical education, it's not the only way to educate a child. It is my favorite way, but it's not the only way. And I believe that it is um, with every discipline, you're able to get to the heart of God and what is behind um, the, the history story that you are learning about or the literature that you're reading or the poetry that you're memorizing or even math and the value of numbers and orders and the representation. I mean, there is not a number one that you buy at the store off the shelf. It's representative. And um, so I just love being able to put these disciplines in context and it's for every human being. It's, it's not to me an issue of this is for those who can access it. Now, of course, classical education is, if you're not homeschooling, then it's usually you find it in private settings. And so it's, that's another feature of, you know, why it's important to try to have a financial model at your school that would take into account that this really needs to be accessible. Um, we don't say that our school is affordable because it's still expensive to have quality faculty and quality everything, but we do make it accessible. And um, our founder has done a beautiful job of telling the story and she invites me with her. And we have many people that, that make up the team that makes King's Academy possible. So there are some obstacles. I think the, the one you mentioned particularly is the criticism that it is elitist. It can be, it can be just like um, there are aspects of Christianity that you can say are just so restrictive and others that are too permissible. And it's just a matter of where you're going. So generally those criticisms are lodged um, when you haven't really actually experienced it. You've heard about it or you researched it and it's a cursory understanding. Frankly, I didn't even know that criticism existed Uh, because my exclusive experience with classical education was one where it was definitely not just for those who could afford it or not just for those who um, were of a socioeconomic status. So um, I'm very blessed to be in a community where there are options for folks to learn classically and it be accessible. And one more word on that, we use the language of being classically inspired. Mm -hmm for a couple of reasons. One is that we uh, embrace the philosophy of Charlotte Mason, Mm -hmm. who, frankly, Charlotte was a classical educator. I don't, some people don't know that, but there's such a Charlotte movement that she's become her own thing, but she was reforming classical education in the late 1800s in London, and it had gone a certain direction, and she was bringing it back to some basics, and 
and enriching it with living books and hands-on learning and the habits. And she's brilliant. And I think that because our flavor of classical education embraces Charlotte, and also because we are drawing from a worldwide sort of canvas of learning, um, we thought that might be helpful is to sort of refer to it as classically inspired, which it is, but it, it has its own nuances and flavors. Beautiful, beautiful. So can you share with us what have been some of the peaks and valleys of this first year? So it's so interesting that you asked that question because um, being the founding head of school, I'm also the lunch lady and also the director of operations and also the human resources coordinator and you name it and the bookkeeper and it's been hard. And so um, I say that tongue in cheek and I also know that any pioneering work, you have to wear those multiple hats Mm -hmm. and that those things will normalize in time. Mm -hmm. And so that is a challenge is just being young and trying, you know, most of our administrative staff there, everybody has multiple tasks um, and they're joyful and do it cheerfully. And um, we're also all happy and thankful when we add our team, when we got our Dean of, Dean of Academics, um, Jocelyn Goodwin, oh, what it, we cheered and she's a game changer. <laughs> and so, and she's also doing lunch duty. So it's, you know, eventually we will normalize. So there's that, there's just the fact that we're a pioneering school. Mm-hmm. And then there's the part that I don't think I anticipated to the degree that I may have needed to, and that is being codes compliant. And, um, you know, we're in a church building that was built in a time where you didn't have fire sprinklers or those kinds of things. And so making sure that our facility is up to codes. And so I spent about as much time on those kinds of structural questions and things that need to be done. And so I'll tell you that I prefer, not that I love that challenge, but that's where my challenges lie. And I am amazed that after a year that what we have is this community that loves to be together. I cannot believe this when I tell you, I still can't believe it. The last day of school, we had so many kids crying because it was the last day of school. I mean, I've never been in a school where I've seen that before. (laughs) Sobbing. It felt more like the last day of summer camp. And yet I say that to you and we were academically rigorous. The kids learn, but they love learning. And I believe that in part, it was because one of our highest, well, for me, this is something that was directly from me is that um, I charged our teachers with enjoying our students. After Mm I, after I said yes to this, the Lord let me know, impressed on my heart that Kings would be characterized by joy. And shouldn't it be? Shouldn't it be? And once he told me that, I said, I'm going to charge my teachers with enjoying their students. So it is a very joyful place. So the fact that the challenges are more external or more structural, Hmm. those are things to pay attention to because they do wear you out and you need to be, you know, try to find solutions in ways that doesn't cost anyone their you know, their health and their well-being. But those, I would say, would be the thing. And, you know, secondarily, and I put this as an afterthought, we came into this during COVID. We started a school during a pandemic. Yeah. Literally, I did all my interviews by Zoom. 
all my teacher oh. interviews, all my family interviews. It's remarkable to me to think that. And so um, there were some benefits that I could never have anticipated. Like they weren't wowed by the facility because they, current, they weren't visiting the facility. It was literally the mission and vision of the school mm-hmm. and the plan that we had laid out for our school. So that was remarkable. And we had some students that never missed a beat during COVID because they were homeschooled or they were in programs that had minimal interruptions because they could, and others that were learning virtually in front of a screen for a whole year or longer. And Mm -hmm. so we did have lots of tiers of uh, learning needs in some of the classrooms, and yet all of our students made gains. The ones that had the lowest gains, maybe not as dramatic a gain as you might expect were those that were ELL. And Mm -hmm. so um, we, and even with that, we had some really wonderful volunteers that came and helped us and we're establishing a student support team this year that will help us. So very nice, very nice. Well, I wanna start drawing to a close. Um, And so I wondered, Um, If you were going to recommend three writers for adults who would like to begin or would like to add to their classical education, who would you recommend and why? Great question. So um, a book that we give our new teachers is one called Consider This by Karen Glass. Hmm. And she does a beautiful job of explaining what is classical education and Charlotte Mason. So she helps us to understand really the heart of it. And um, it was very beneficial um, for us. So I would highly recommend uh, that book, Consider This by Karen Glass. And um, many, many, many years ago, I read a book called Wisdom and Eloquence, a Christian Paradigm for Classical Learning. And it's by Robert Littlejohn and Charles Evans. And um, I found it to be extremely encouraging. Um, Just on a side note for me, I, in my staff training at the preschool, I told my teachers, because many of, many teachers, as a matter of fact, have little experience with classical education. So it's rare when you find a teacher trained in classical education. So, um, you know, we have to do our, our work in kind of transferring that ideal and those principles. But I did tell my preschool staff, I said, if you focus on observation and vocabulary, you will be going miles. Observation and vocabulary. I want you to ask your students lots of questions and use mm-hmm. the proper vocabulary for them. And you know, when they have snack, ask them, how does the graham cracker taste? Is, is it, where do you taste the sweetness on your tongue? And where do you mm-hmm. taste, is there salt and, and the crunch? And just have them really make, make a language rich environment. And so when I saw the book Wisdom and Eloquence, I thought how beautiful because observation is one of the basic foundations that'll lead you toward wisdom Mm -hmm. and vocabulary being the basics of coming to eloquence. So um, it's a great starting place. And to know that that is what you're building in your students is you're wanting them to come to a place of wisdom and eloquence. And then the last book, um, I have so many post-it notes. I haven't completed the whole thing because it is just a feast. And I, you may know this book and have read it, but it's The Liberal Arts Tradition, A Philosophy of Christian Classical Education by Dr. Kevin Clark and Robbie Scott-Jane. And yes. 
just phenomenal. Just such a great book and does a beautiful job of um, talking about the classical model of education and really bringing it to its core foundation because a lot of times we have sort of an interpretation of classical ed in today's day, but he really does a great job of kind of explaining the trivium and the quadrivium and what the intent was in each of those disciplines. And so I would really recommend those books. I think the most um, accessible book would be Consider This. Hmm. Um, And the others are a little bit heavier of a read, but um, yeah, I'd start there. That's wonderful. Yeah, um, I think that's especially valuable, those recommendations for parents who might be thinking about classical schools for their kids or dabbling their toe in it, or maybe even thinking about homeschooling classically. Uh, When I was at the beginning of this process and we were deciding to homeschool, I was introduced to classical education pretty early on, which I'm very happy for. and it was reading Susan Wise Bauer, mm-hmm. uh, Well-Trained Mind, um, that just yes. really helped me to understand how this could be done. And so I think the kinds of resources that you're suggesting um, for parents is so important. Um, and you made reference to you know, finding classical teachers and, and how you, you're, you really have to do your own training. And I, I think it's true of parents as well, right? You know, I, um, I really credit... Um, so many in the classical movement for training me, you know, mm. other parents who knew more, who were, you know, always investing in time in me and other parents doing reading groups and, you know, you should be reading this and let's talk about this together. Um, just going through the curriculum, we did classical conversations, mm-hmm. getting to go to conferences. Um, it's It's just been such a beautiful opportunity to be immersed um, amongst people like yourself who are just doing this really, really beautiful work. And I just thank you so much. Thank you. Well, thank you for those words. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Before we leave though, I thought uh, it might be nice to know um, for the audience to know the um, catechism that you did, the children's first catechism, ask me who, is that available to others? Yes, it is. So it is a three CD project and it covers all 150 questions of the children's first catechism. That's derived from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It was derived, well, it was developed by Joseph Engels in the late 1800s, wanting something a little more basic. And when you look at the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it's very humbling to think that that catechism was written for children Mm -hmm. (laughs) in that day. And it was simplified in the 1800s. And so I, the, this project takes similarly themed questions and answers and combines them into songs. So there's about 72 songs um, overall. So last year, the kids learned the first 52, I think, questions and answers of the catechism through song and sign language. And then over three years, they will have been totally catechized. The beauty about using that body of work is that most major denominations derive their own catechisms from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And we differ on some of the questions. And because we're not a church school, I'm careful to be sure that we're not just sort of flavoring it toward a particular denomination. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and to just let kids know, we've been 
basic enough that that has not yet come, but they'll come. We'll get to the Baptistic questions and and make sure that the kids understand that, you know, there's various ways that that tradition has been expressed mm-hmm. in the different denominations. But um, it is set to music. I sing the question in my own children when they were little, sing the responses. So it's a family project. It's really oh. fun. And the project is named Ask Me Who. And it's three O's. So if you go to askmewho.com, I'm still selling CDs for people who still use CDs, but you can also buy it anywhere. You can also access it on Spotify Hmm. and um, Apple Music. I mean, you can can get it anywhere. That music is found. So, um, and sometimes you need to search it under my name, Diana Batarsi. Yeah. So beautiful. Yeah. I will definitely take a look at that. I love that so much. Well, Diana, thank you so much. Um, It has truly been a pleasure and just God's richest blessings in your continued work. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure spending time with you. I just admire you so much and thank you for doing this good work. Thank you. Take care. 